0: Welcome to the Network Marketing Heroes podcast, hosted by 40-year network marketing veteran, author of best-selling books, The Four-Year Career, and Mach 2 With Your Hair on Fire, and world-renowned speaker, Richard Bliss Brook. When it comes to success in network marketing, who better to learn from than leaders who have actually done it? Listen as Richard interviews top leaders and gives you a behind-the-scenes look at how they did it. You'll get incredible tips and duplicable actions you can do right now to build your own four-year career. Stay tuned after this episode for an exclusive discount code to get 10% off Richard's easy-to-use tools that will help propel your network marketing business to the next level at BlissBusiness.com.
1: Hey, everybody. Richard Blissbrook here with yet another global influencer interview. And today we have from Salt Lake City and occasionally Woodland, Utah, Garrett Gunderson, who's one of the most preeminent money coaches on the planet. And when you see what he's done and how he does it and how, what his approach is to coaching people on money, you'll see just how unique he is. He's a, a New York Times best-selling author, Get these books right. Killing the Sacred Cows, the first one that I read, which really kind of connected me to him. Budgeting Sucks is his latest book, which you're going to love. If you want to check that out, go to budgetingsucks.com. He is a seminar leader um, of the highest order, sharing the stage with anybody who's anybody Arianna Huffington, Tony Robbins. Richard Branson, uh, you name it. This guy has been coaching and inspiring and teaching people about money, that taboo subject we're not ever supposed to talk about, for a few decades now, and he's had a huge impact on the wealth of anybody that pays attention. Welcome, Garrett.
2: Richard, how many books have you written now? That's my question. How many books have you written? uh three all right that's i mean not many people write more than one i think it takes an insane person like you and i to go to (laughs) number two or number three you know like forget that process for a minute and then (laughs) re-engage yeah
1: i'm on number four um but yeah i mean it actually the funny thing is about books you you can write one in about a week if you just focus right (laughs) just get it done So, Garrett, uh, we're going to get into everything you do around wealth coaching and why you do that. But I like to start these interviews off by um, just finding out about where did people come from? Because I'm fascinated and I think other people are fascinated by, you know, how did people end up? How do you end up a wealth coach? And you didn't take a direct route to that uh, niche, that profession. You started right. off in different places on a different journey. So tell us about that. Where'd you come from and how'd you end up here?
2: I grew up until in a, in a, third grade in a town called East Carbon, Utah, which most people probably haven't heard of. And I think at its heyday, it had 5,000 people that lived there and two cops right now. Last I checked, there's less than 1,000 people and five cops. So that place is moving in the wrong direction at this point, you know? <laughs> it was all coal mines that's why that's why my great grandfather left italy to go there to you know try to provide for a better life and really was about uh, getting rid of the shackles of poverty but he really got caught in the shackles of scarcity because i mean being separated from his family for 7 years before he actually got them over living in a tent dealing with mine disasters and so i kind of came from this this beginning where amazing people great people but it was all about what you could hang on to protect everything at all costs it was it was very much governed by fear doubt and worry and and i had a lot of that early on uh, but i also had this this just mom that was like you're not going to be in a mine and there's no chance in hell i mean let you see one you're 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 going to do something else and when i was 15 I really wanted to get a job or earn some money, but I was also playing sports. So my dad was saying, hey, you know what? I've got these these surface vehicles from the mine. They have to be cleaned. You can help me with it. I started doing a decent job with that. So I started my own business, which was going to my mom's place of work, which is a credit union. They would type the repossessed vehicles. I would help detail and clean those. And then, you know, the mine vehicles. And then on six, seven months in. I presented that business at a business competition for young rural entrepreneurs. And I took third place and it came with five hundred bucks. And I think I became a speaker that day, Richard, because before that I was scrubbing tar and bugs with the car detailing business. And all of a sudden I was speaking and I got five hundred bucks. The next year I took first place, then I won it for the the whole state and it came with five thousand dollars. And I thought, you know, I want to get out of this town. I want to make it to the big city of Salt Lake City. To me, that was the big, you know, intimidating city. And in trying to invest $5,000 before I was 18 years old, I had to have my mom sign off. But their family really kept money in Folgers cans in the cellar. So there wasn't really an investing methodology or philosophy that just seemed far too risky. And when I finally turned 18, I just started to risk it in things I didn't understand because they just seemed seductive and sexy. And when the stock market started going down in the year 2000, that's where it really began for me. I was like, wait. And I went on a 26 month journey flying somewhere at least once a month and leveraged my young age where I could go meet with very successful, highly affluent people because I feel like a lot of them want to pay it forward to young, interested people. I had a little red memo Mm -hmm. pad with lines and I would just go ask them questions. And I started to figure out there was a completely different world a completely different philosophy and methodology than what I had learned and grew up with. And that's how I got involved in in the money game.
1: And who are some of the people that you tracked down and asserted yourself into their life and career that helped you?
2: Steve Harrop was a big one. He managed $5 billion in municipal bond funds for strong investments at the time. They were the number two investment company in the world. And he was the number one fund manager. For municipal bonds. He, was the, he won every award. He owned it. And so I became a racquetball partner of him because he wanted to get in good shape. And I started working out with him and, and started asking him questions. Uh, this other guy, Vince Dodona, um, who was a, a Manhattan guy that managed, he actually managed the money for the Wall Street executives. So yep. it, he was their guy. He, I, I was a nuisance to him back then and just an annoyance, but I was friends with his secretary and his wife so he had to tolerate me and let me into some advanced training before i was ever ready but i you know one of my bigger moments was 2 years ago when i spoke at the same event as him and he when he spoke after me he said that i was brilliant and then he told me i did a good job which even for him to use the word good was pretty great and then we sat down and had lunch and and uh, had a phenomenal conversation so so Vince was another big person for me I met with someone named Kim Butler, who was Robert Kiyosaki's advisor at the time. And uh, I'm actually speaking at her event coming up here in just a few weeks, virtually, of course, uh, yeah. for that event. But, you know, so so that's just to name a few of the people that were out there. But I chased people from Arizona to Manhattan to I was just going wherever I possibly could. And even met this guy, Todd Langford, who developed software to help figure things out. I went to New York multiple times, met with the woman Barbara Treadwell and directly with the corporations that were managing money and actually met with actuaries and, you know, the people that invented product lines. And so a lot of those people don't get hit up very often. So it was actually much easier than I, than I originally thought to get those meetings.
1: What did you say to people when you got them on the phone or however you connected, what was the vision you cast for them that compelled them to say, sure, come on over. I'll talk to you. What was your pitch?
2: Yeah, that's nobody's asked me that question. It's such a good question um, for people to know. Is what I what I told was my story. I just said, Hey, look, I come from a family that, like I told you, buries coffee, you know, buries money in coffee cans. And I'm from a small town. And when I first heard of family office, the low tier ones, a family office was invented by the Rockefellers that, you know, people with $200, $300 million or more, would just have their own financial team working for them. Right. And then we started to see this where uh, family offices started to become, maybe they take on 10 clients and you have to be worth $30 million. And so once I discovered that, I started to tell my story and say, if my whole town gathered up all their money, they couldn't qualify for a family office. And I said, I want to build something like that for the average person. And, and just by saying that, a lot of times they would want to tell me why it wasn't possible, why it hadn't been done before. But they kind of liked the young piss and vinegar, you know, uh, just that I was willing to ask questions. And more than anything, I listened. I just took notes and listened. I didn't debate. I didn't argue with these initial people. I started doing that later with attorneys and other people at a very young, arrogant age. I think it was Good in some ways, harmful in others, but I just wanted to put what I was learning to the test.
1: So that's interesting. Your The, the, the uh, stimulus for what you've created in Wealth Factory was actually the family office that you were looking to create a community of people like the people of East Carbon who maybe only had a coffee can. So here's my coffee can. Let's put them together with a thousand other coffee cans. And now, now we have something to work with. And so you created a family office for the common person.
2: Exactly. Which is, I get why they would tell me it was going to be difficult to do because the capacity of these individuals would mean that I'd have to continue to meet more relationships. And what I decided to do was not initially, the first mistake I made was I tried to build it all internally what I realized quickly is I wasn't going to be the best property and casualty agency in the world, or the best accounting firm in the world, because I would get spread thin. And I was also a bit greedy initially because I'm like, well, I should just make money on all of this. Right. And what I realized quickly was that would limit the number of people that I would reach and it would limit the value I could create for those people. So instead, I created this vetting process that was an interview process, an application process, and then I used my book like Killing Sacred Cows, really exploded it for me because we had a lot more reach. And I could use that to have people see if they resonate or not. And then I actually had a team that would do these interviews because to get in the network, it's about a nine-month minimum process. They answer a 42-question application. It's a unanimous voting process for other people in the network. And then we have a testing phase where they work with. Us or our coaches to see what they would do in our situation to make sure that they're giving good advice, and that weeds out a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting process. It took 13 years to first launch it um, in a in a good capacity. And What it meant was I had to abandon all commissions and instead to go to a tuition based model that was backed by results and implementation, which is actually much more complicated than just having people. Like an, ins- like an insurance or an investment company pay me. And the person didn't have to write a check. They just right. put money into something. And, you know, so it's an uphill battle at times, but it's also part of the passion and crusade at the same
1: time. Well, I remember some of the people you introduced me to at the event that I went to were really interesting professionals that were experts in their niche. And you got, there's a lot of different niches and avenues that somebody might want to go down, whether it's insurance or investments or legal, and you got to have those professionals. I guess that's kind of what a family office is. It might help people. Garrett, what is a family office? What does that concept mean to the common person? So if you think of the the world's wealthiest families, they have so
2: much money that they require full-time support. So they've got their own investment advisor that doesn't work for anyone else but that family. They've got their own accounting team that only works for them. They've got their own insurance or risk management department that helps design and, and do everything versus just an agent maybe at State Farm. And so what well, the first time I saw one, it was a conference room table where there was no client in the room. It was just all these financial professionals communicated. They were, they were coordinated. It was the very comprehensive, Methodology. And so I was like, oh, this is a big deal. And at first I was very fascinated, but it turned to frustration pretty quickly because I was like, oh, this is elite as hell. And, you know, there's so many people that will never get this. And I realized there was this huge faction between the advice that they gave and the advice that commission driven salespeople were giving. Not that all commission driven salespeople, they're not even bad people. They're just limited by a system that doesn't reward comprehensiveness, right? Like, because they couldn't get paid
1: on it. Right. So tell us what have you built? What is wealthfactory.com and who's a good candidate for it? You got people from all walks of life, all income levels watching this. So let's say I make 200 grand a year and I have 200 grand sitting around somewhere. Am I a candidate or do I need to have a million dollars or what if I make 50 grand a year and I have $5,000 sitting around? Yeah. How's Wealth Factory going to support me? I will say
2: this if someone is over $10 million of revenue or $10 million of net worth, Wealth Factory will not work with you. We actually have family offices that we'll refer you to, that we vetted, that we feel comfortable with, but they have a limited amount of capacity. And our objective at Wealth Factory is to liberate 1 million people to become economically independent, change their family's financial future and destiny. And if we work with people at that level, they take far too much time because too many people are hitting them up. There's a lot of complexity to what they're doing. So there's three main uh, programs we have and people that we work with. And the first one has taken me the longest to build that I'm going to mention, which is for those people that want to be entrepreneurs, but they're maybe not there yet. Maybe they've got a side hustle. Maybe they've got a little bit of income coming in different than their W-2 job. But we've actually created something called Wealth Builders Club that's very affordable, That we can really help them with the basics and also focused on what they can do to increase their capacity. The second program is for entrepreneurs or people that have a business, but they haven't cracked the million dollar revenue mark. So we want them to make sure they're making at least $100,000 net income to get in the program, but they they don't have to have a huge amount of net worth. We don't care. They just have they have the same problems that everybody has, which is they have to deal with taxes, they have to deal with loans, and so we help them get their financials in order. And then the third program is the one we've had the longest, and that's really for those entrepreneurs that have cracked the million dollar mark, but they're below the ten million. They're married, they have at least one child at home, they've got a couple loans, they're paying too much in tax, and we hit pretty big home runs. It's a little bit bigger investment there, but you know we're not really a firm that provides for people that just want to be employees. If you're going to be an employee, it's actually a pretty easy financial structure. But as soon as you're going to enter the entrepreneurship world, taxes are infinitely more complicated, but infinitely more rewarding. Loans are more difficult to get, and there's different opportunities that you can have. You're buying insurances that other people don't even know it exists. So really, we're designed for that business owner. But for the 96% of the business owners out there, You know, the people that aren't worth the huge amounts of money that could get really good firms. We're here to serve that neglected area.
1: Yeah. And there's so many people, whether, you know, we we tend not to think about it, but a dentist is actually an entrepreneur. A chiropractor is an entrepreneur. We have so many dentists
2: and chiropractors.
1: (laughs) Right. a, a, A network marketer is an entrepreneur. 100%. But... But they don't know anything about insurance and they always get bit when it goes to, okay, I just went full time in my network marketing company and now I'm going to go buy a new home. And here's my uh, tax returns and here's my mortgage application or here's my 1099. And they wonder why, I mean, the lights get turned off, right? Like nobody pays any attention to them. So there's so much to learn, right? Besides just whatever your specific. Entrepreneurial niche is right, and so let's talk philosophy. What are some of the biggest mistakes around money that you have seen people make, entrepreneurs make, like philosophical mistakes? Well, I'm just
2: gonna say one that I imagine your crowd knows because if they know anything about you, you're the master of this which is they don't focus on recurring revenue. You help people focus on recurring revenue, which is a game changer. It's cash flow and people that don't have recurring revenue in their life never achieve a sense of freedom because it's always going up for the next kill, always, you know, one situation away from not making payroll or those kind of things. So that is a massive
1: mistake. Yeah, I call it the rule of 200 like if you make Couple thousand dollars a month in your side hustle. That's worth a couple thousand dollars a month. But if you build it such that you can make that two thousand dollars a month and go fishing for three months, that two thousand dollars a month is worth more like four or five hundred grand, <laughs> right? It actually and if becomes yeah. quite an asset.
2: Uh, in my newest book that I'm writing right now, we did a study, uh, and just some of the data that came back, we took. We took some recurring revenue businesses that hadn't cracked the billion-dollar revenue. And then we took companies like Ford that have multiples and multiples of billions. And these smaller companies would sell for a bigger dollar figure than the others simply because of the recurring revenue mark. So it, it not only does it create that stability for you in your life, it creates exponential growth if you ever intend to sell it. And so I I just think that's such a massive mistake that people are making because we've been trained, taught, and educated on one major flaw around money. And this major flaw is that the function of having more money comes down to three things. Number one, how much money you can put away. There's people that say it takes money to make money. And those are people that want your money, that tell you that. What it takes is value creation, human ingenuity, serving others, solving problems. I mean, there's so many ways to make money. But when people believe it takes money to make money, that's only one way that you can make money. The second thing is people are told erroneously that high risk equals high return. The people that make the most in this world are the best at managing risk a lot of times and taking ways that they could be profitable as early as possible with the least amount of risk possible. And it's only seen as risky to the person who doesn't understand it. People that take risk, unknowingly, or they think it's part of the process, it's because they're outsiders looking in or someone else has sold them on taking risk while they get the return. Once again, part of the problem. And then the third component, you know, is this kind of old cliche of, yeah, the best things come to those who wait. The problem is waiting around. A lot of things pass you by and people believe they've got this 30 year horizon. But in that 30 years, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. So the accumulation belief is money times rate times time. It's a slow, dogmatic process that doesn't take into consideration recurring revenue or cash flow. It thinks, oh, in 30 years from now, I'll worry about that. But if we don't focus on cash flow throughout our life, and then 30 years later, now it's the main responsibility for us to live and have a livelihood, we are ill prepared. And this is why 95% of Americans are not economically independent at age 65. They never learned how to create cash flow or manage risk. And so, my belief is in The velocity of money, which is how the economy works, it's GDP divided by money supply. GDP is our output. So if we look at it in an individual level, it's our output divided by our input. So how do we increase output without having to scrimp, sacrifice, delay, or defer? It's number one through efficiency. Plug the leaks of four major areas. Taxes, interest, investment fees or non-performing commissions that don't help, and insurance, where there's duplicate coverages or costs. This isn't coupon clipping. This is keeping a lot more of what you make without cutting back. And then the second thing for Velocity is expansion. Expansion is expanding our means. It's adding more value. It's reaching more people. It's more deeply impacting the people we reach without our daily involvement as time goes on. So we're maintaining it through some management and monitoring it, but we're not trading time for money, which is the trap that far too many people get in. So I know you have. A lot to say about all that, so I'll just let you uh, speak your piece because you know we're fairly aligned in this, Richard.
1: Yeah, well, I come from the network marketing space. You you have done a lot of work with healthcare professionals, and I I remember one of the strategies you're teaching specifically chiropractors is okay, you're a chiropractor, you got an office, but you're not making any money if you're not there, and so you're basically trading time for money, and you're then you're an employee. Basically, you kind of think you're an entrepreneur, but you don't have any leverage and you don't have any way to exponentially grow your cash flow. What if you brought on some associates and you started setting up satellite offices, right? Now you're taking a percentage off those satellite offices. You don't have to be there. You've leveraged yourself. You got maybe some exponential growth in your cash flow. And... You know, I think that the thing that I hear you talk about, Garrett, that's so brilliant is this distinction between the old model of, okay, let me let me get $50,000 and invest it at 10% a year, which you have to actually kind of have your wits about you to maintain 10% a year for 30 years, right. which means in seven years from now, you'll have 100 And 14 years from now, you'll have 200. And 21 years from now, you'll have 400. But the 400 grand is only going to be earning you about three grand a month, right? (laughs) So you spent your whole life creating minimal cash flow. And what if you just got creative? And, you know, like you say, like people say, well, I don't have the money to like invest in something. And I know every time you've sat down with somebody, I, don't, I do a little bit of financial coaching with somebody. But whenever somebody tells me I don't have the money to do that, I say, well, you want to look at, let's look at your money, income and expense, which that always takes a little bit of work because most people don't even do it. Right. So once they do their income and expense, you just go down through the expenses and you say, okay, how does that expense contribute to generating cash flow? How does that expense? How does that expense? And you end up eliminating $500 to $1,500, maybe more of people's overhead because they're wasting it on stuff that isn't aligned with their goals. It's just habitual, right?
2: Yep, totally.
1: So, you know, I think the the magic of people studying what you do is we got to break these old paradigms of, you know, investing and saving um, at a at a fixed rate of return to generate our future because compared to generating cash flow creatively, that's. I mean, you could actually die before you ended up with any money.
2: Right? The, the 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 stats are out right now that a million dollars is producing less than forty thousand dollars of income for retirees. So on paper they're millionaires but in life they're paupers because yep. i i actually went to the bank i don't go there very often but i i had to get cash for one reason or another and i just sat there and watched the rotating screen say money markets .25% so a quarter of 1% cd's .35% a third of a percent and then i'm watching when it says car loans uh 1.9% I'm like that is a huge let's think about this for a minute. If I could borrow money and pay you a dollar to borrow your money and I can sell that same money for $3 that's hundreds of percent of markup. Yeah. And and so here it is we're being trained to follow these rules but they're not the rules that the institutions play by. It's not what the wealthy play by. It's just what People that have been taught that it's too complicated, just hand your money over. And when you think about it, there's so many things you can do to create cash flow and recurring revenue that doesn't require any money to get started or it requires such minimal things to get started. I mean, $5,000 max or less. And there's so many stories that I could share of this one guy, Rich Christensen, who's now sold 19 businesses. Of which none of the 19 businesses took more than $5,000 of capital to start, and none of the businesses sold for less than seven figures. Because there's this other, there's two other forms of capital that people miss. The first form is our mental capital ideas, knowledge, wisdom, tools, strategies, and insights. It's a time right now we've got to invest in skill sets that enhance that, which a lot of that is communication and speaking. It's collaboration and relationship building, right? Like not just, oh, I'm a little bit better at woodworking than I was last year. Okay, that's helpful, but it's not a game changer. And then the second form of capital is relationship capital. People, networks, organizations, mentors, friends, and family. You're brilliant at relationship capital. And I think that's one of the key reasons that you're so wealthy because of how you manage and grow that relationship capital which unfortunately, as human beings, we're not really taught to do. There's no textbook on it in schools. There's no emphasis on it in financial planning, yet it's the most underutilized valuable asset there is. So if we take our mental capital and we use it to serve others and solve problems for our relationship capital, the result will be financial capital, which means money follows value. So the goal is, how do we create more value in a way that's consistent with creating cash flow and recurring revenue, and how can that value exist even if we don't open a laptop or show up to an office that day? And when we can answer that question, the world starts to open up and unlock. As you know, I'm speaking to the, to the choir here, you know, and I mean, my, my world changed when we created recurring revenue. When, and it was a night, like I had to make a major overhaul for 90 days that was excruciating But I knew that 90 days was going to change my life forever, which it has. And my reward was I just went to Italy for several months. Well, income came in and I was in Italy. Right. And I was enjoying myself. I worked five half days over 63 days. And the rest of the time I was drinking, you know, lattes, (laughs) swimming in the pool, uh, having four hour dinners. And unfortunately, bringing some of my uh, amount of drinking from America to the frequency of <laughs> Italy. That is a terrible combination. For you, gotta, you know, I'm, not, I'm now just haven't drank forever just to compensate for that and recover.
1: Yeah, I remember when you did that. That was entertaining to to watch you over there. So earlier you talked about something at the bank that I, I think is like an interesting little piece to drill down on because one of the things that's baked into all of us is that borrowing is taboo, right? Borrowing is risky. And, you know, you don't want to borrow money, especially to launch. Maybe you have an idea, right? You created some yeah. widget in your mind or you have some service or some training you want to market it online. You need to hire some people to coach you. You need to hire a copywriter or whatever, right? You need some capital, but Oh, we don't ever want to borrow. So so if I walk in the bank and they're selling money at whatever 5% and I borrow $5,000 what's that going to actually cost me a year to be able to utilize the bank's $5,000 if they're charging 5% interest so I get 5,000 in capital I can use that capital for a year or two to mm-hmm. create Value, what's it going to cost me for five thousand dollars at five percent to borrow their capital?
2: Yeah, so you've got two hundred and fifty bucks that you're paying out, but but let's let's this is the way I look at it. Richard, if I'm willing to lend you money at zero percent interest, how much do you want? All of it. (laughs) Yep. How quickly do you want to pay me back on that? Never. Yep. So that's the exact right answer to that question because. You 100% with certainty know that you can do better than 0%. And because you can do better than 0%, you're printing money for yourself. You've got cash flow that can come in from that. Now, if I say 1%, do your answers change? Well, not really. <laughs> not really, yeah. <laughs> because but... you, you can do better than 1%. Now, they change if I say 20%. Oh, you know, yeah. big time. It doesn't mean that we might not borrow at certain times at that rate, but it's going to be very short. And we're going to pay it back because maybe there's just the right opportunity to capitalize on. So this is what's called cost of money. Cost of money is your highest rate of return that you can earn sustainably. So for some people, if they have a 17% American Express card, that's your cost of money, 17%. Because anytime you don't pay that down, it's costing you 17% to use your dollars. Other people, it's just in their business, they could earn really good rates of return. And if they use those dollars, you know, to do something else, it's costing them for what they could produce. So I think cost of money is an important part of that. And second is people should never borrow money if they're just going to consume it. If we borrow it, we spend it, and all we have to show for it is a good memory, but no cash flow. That's why I think the advice to never borrow came into play is because too many people were consuming. Banks never borrow to consume. But what if you were to borrow money to acquire an asset? And what if that asset, like, let's just say you could buy someone's downline right now, right? You know exactly what to do, exactly how to lead. You've got the infrastructure. You've got the insights. And you know you were going to borrow money for that. But you knew from day one you could cash flow that thing, And you're going to get more cash flow coming from that than what you spent on it. Did you go into debt? No, you actually went into the opposite of debt called equity. Because you had more value, and you could turn around and sell that and pay that loan off. People get confused about what debt is. Debt is when you owe more than you have in an asset. Equities when you have more in an asset than debt. So, as an example, would be, you know, if I bought a house for a hundred thousand dollars that I knew was worth two hundred thousand dollars that I could cash flow from day one, and I borrow, I'm not in debt. I'm in equity. Yet people are told to avoid debt like the plague, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Well. Sometimes we have to look at the banks have been doing this to to us for years, yet somehow we're okay giving them money. But when it's time for us to invest in ourselves or create cash flow, we listen to thought leaders like Susie Orman or even Dave Ramsey that are coming from a perspective that if you're a train wreck that spends more than what you make, listen to them. If you are buying an asset and you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to create more cash flow, that advice might be limiting for you.
1: Yeah. I mean the, the simple model is if I'm paying $250 a year to use $5,000 that's 20 bucks a month. So the question is, can I make more than $20 a month with this $5,000? <laughs> right. Or if I buy a if I buy a rental home and my payment is $1,500 a month and I can rent it for $2,500 a month, is that a good use of borrowing money? I think uh debt is is either good or bad depending on whether you owe it or own it right (laughs) just like you said the banks have been doing it forever why because they own the debt it's a good thing but they don't even have a product they don't even give you a toaster
2: anymore to let you know you're going to get (laughs) burned or like when i went there they're like hey do you want a lollipop sucker i don't know if they paused because i was a sucker giving them money or what you know but like it's come on i mean like they're just doing this blatantly and they advertise exactly what they're doing yet because they've been around for a long time, people don't think about it. They just go, Oh yeah, I just hand the money there.
1: You just slipped in a little bit of your uh, money comedy in there. I'd noticed I (laughs) just a touch what's (laughs) they don't even give you a toaster anymore to let you know you've been burned. (laughs) So one of the things I learned about Garrett just in chatting, catching up before this interview, folks, is he's doing stand-up com- comedy around money. How funny is that?
2: Well, I mean, so, it's about time someone did. I think you know. There's a lot of there's
1: a lot to be laughed at there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, yeah, I look forward to seeing some of that because I'll bet you're uh, really, really good at it. So. What's the future look like for you? You've got your, the, your latest book, Budgeting Sucks. Uh, you want to talk about that for a second and then tell us what are you doing over the next five to seven years? What do you see on the financial horizon? Is the stock yep. market going to plummet? Is real estate going to go up?
2: <laughs> the commercial real estate is scary as ever, but lower end residential real estate. Can be extraordinarily profitable in the next while because we become a lending society. So, 60% of what people spend money, um, the money came from a loan. So, 60%, that's crazy. And so, what's going to happen is when the banks start tightening up, which right now they've been flooded with money, they've got more than ever, but their value hasn't been created for that. So, we're going to have a reckoning. I don't know. I could tell, I wish I could tell you when that's going to happen, but there's too many moving pieces. If they do another act and they throw more cash, they put another Band-Aid over the bullet wound. So it's, it's hard to predict. But I am certain that it's going to be within three to 36 months where they're going to have to pay the piper. And right now, the stock market is so overvalued. But what is undervalued is private businesses. If you're willing to acquire private businesses, businesses that are $2 million of revenue or less. There isn't a multiple on those like there is the public businesses. I mean, you might be paying 70 times more than what the company is actually worth when you buy in a stock market. If you just look at their earnings and you look at the price that you pay. But when you look at a small business, because it requires human involvement, because it requires human labor to really do something, you can get that for a much lower price. And I think we're going to find a lot of those businesses in trouble because they didn't manage cash flow or have cash on hand. So I see myself acquiring businesses that complement my, my mission of 1 million people to haunt you know, economic independence. So whether they have digital portfolios and, and reach that we don't have, whether they have capabilities and financial technology that we don't have, or whether it's simply they have a way to build a bigger service infrastructure without having to hire and spend five years building it, we're we're on the lookout for that right now, but we're also being patient about it. Uh I've got three major projects I'm working on right now. One is I'm writing something called The American Dream, but I'm crossing out the D, The American Dream. It's my one-hour stand-up special for comedy. A lot around money, a little bit around my personal life and family. The second thing is I'm writing a book that will come out next year. Um, and that book, I've got a publisher. It's going to be a pretty big campaign. I'm willing to dedicate seven years minimum. I'm willing to dedicate 20 years of my life to have this book become something that's mainstream because it really breaks it down into a few different categories of how people can profit up front without the risk. And so there's there's a way to do that where you make money on the buy with your with your investments, there's a way to get cash flow from day 1, there's a way to plug leaks and keep more what you make or there's a way to create economic independence within 10 years rather than waiting for 30 years and never quite getting there. There's a conversation around legacy and there's really this concept around how you can pre-sell something before you've created it. So you don't even have to borrow money. Your actual subscribers and fans pay for the thing. And then they get it at the end. We did it with the Statue of Liberty in the United States. It came over right. from France, but they didn't ever build a visitor center. So what they did is in the New York magazines, they said, hey, would you like to donate? You'll be the first to get tickets. And if you donate this much, you'll get a brick with your name on it. If you donate this much, a diff- and guess what? They raised all the money without borrowing a single cent. And when it was over, they owed nobody anything other than access to the thing that created momentum. I did it with Killing Sacred Cows, 22,000 copies pre-sold. So I'm finally unveiling the strategies that I've been using for years and a lot of our clients more to the masses and then really a a chapter around living your legacy and these concepts of no matter how much money you have, you can leave behind a set of values and philosophies and guidelines and you can invest into your heirs. So they're left with opportunity instead of a crippling amount of money that gets them to sit on their ass and do nothing. So, so it's a, I'm excited about that book. And I wrote a one-man show around it. So I'm actually performing a one-man show where I play four different characters, bring entertainment into a normally tough topic so people can laugh, enjoy, watch, and even have some emotion through it. And at the end of it go, I never thought I could understand money this good ever. And I now understand it this good in an hour. So those are my major uh, initiatives right now.
1: Yeah, that's huge, Garrett. I mean, you have found a niche that is such a big lever for prosperity and peace and confidence and for people to live better lives than they live now just by understanding some simple concepts around money. And it takes somebody like you that approaches the conversation different, right? Just in a disruptive way, a controversial way, a humorous way to get people to listen because, you know, people have been taught that there's only one way, you know, and don't stray from that. Don't listen to other people because they'll take all your money. (laughs) Uh, But you've just done a brilliant job for decades now of, of teaching people what they need to know to prosper. And, you know, when you think about it, like people spend 40 years of their life, most of their waking hours Doing something to pay the bills with some idea in their head about getting ahead, and yet most don't. Yeah. And so the financial IQ of Americans is right down there around D minus, maybe an F. Great stuff you're doing. I I, I really That's look smart. forward to um, to seeing all of it, especially the stand up routine. Beautiful. Also, I'm going to give you a little link after this uh, for you. And
2: by the way, I, I'll just say this. Hard work with the wrong philosophy still equals bankruptcy, limited results, or frustration. And if hard work is all it took, my coal mining family would have been extraordinarily wealthy. But yep. it, it's it's really, we've got to learn about how money works, that value creation is at the core of what how it works, and it's not just about trading time for dollars because that system is a time of the industrial age. And we've exited that at in actuality, but most people's mentality didn't come along, right? We're yeah. in the time of yeah. brains. Not We're no longer in the time of brawn.
1: Right. And, you know, I think the, the big paradigm shift that I see you having access to with people is this idea that you don't have to use your manpower or even your knowledge or your skill and trade it time for money forever, you can create something. We all have this brilliant genius ability to create something of value. And then there is this technology out there in the world which is called marketing, right? There is marketing technology that can take something we have, some idea, whether it's, you know, let me teach you how to play the guitar. Right? And there's a way to market that so you can go e- exponentially beyond, "Let me teach you how to play the guitar for 20 bucks an hour," or let me teach you how to play the guitar. I'll do it once, and we'll sell it two thousand times that That uh, brilliance, that knowledge is out there, and that's how you and I can convert our brilliance, our unique gifts, our value, because we all have it. We all have something, something we're passionate about, something we're good at, something we've created, some conversation, some skill. Maybe it has to do with what we're doing for a living now. Maybe it's just something we thought about when we were seven years old. And if we could invest some money and some time in learning the marketing part of that, We can take that hour of piano lessons or guitar lessons and turn it into 2,000. And that's cash flow. And that's now, right? And 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 COVID makes it
2: easier than ever because people are being trained to consume things from technology more than we've ever seen. I mean, so, so whatever the excuse was, there's less of an excuse today. I think there's, you know, it's just time to do something about it. And you, you so eloquently and brilliantly stated that.
1: Yeah, the alternative is uh, you have this list, which maybe you could repeat. I don't remember it, but it's like scrimp, save, suffer. It's like what one yeah. of those things. Sacrifice, defer, delay, right? And, yeah. and I think, yeah,
2: that's that's the, what. I'll just break it down into two things. A lot of the population playing not to lose, holding on to what they've got hoping nothing changes, and in severe fear and pain. Another part of the population is in playing to win. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to grind. I'm going to work. And I'm going to sacrifice. So that way down the road one day, someday, it's going to pay off. And they're suffering. You've got to find a way to create a win in the work that you do and have the work work without your daily involvement. Do something that you enjoy, that's meaningful to you and to others, and that's the key. And I, I mean, read your books, and they'll they'll understand that. You know, they'll get a sense of that from mine as well.
1: But uh, yeah, yeah. The alternative is to suffer for forty years to retire on one third of what was never enough for the forty years, and that's if nothing. And that's if nothing goes wrong. <laughs> It's not, yeah, it's not working.
2: Um, So it's time to turn off the TV and turn on the brain. That's the deal. Yeah,
1: I love that. Hey, Garrett, thank you so much. You're a a real gift. I trust people will study this and drill down on your stuff. Join your programs, read your books. Just think about the simple concept of bringing value to the marketplace for residual income. And life's going to be better around money. Thank you so much for uh, joining us here at RV.com. And those of you out there share this interview, go check him out. Your life will be better for it. Thanks, Garrett. Thanks, Richard. Have a great one, man.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Richard Bliss Brooks Network Marketing Heroes Podcast. If you are inspired and are ready to create your own success story, then it is time to take advantage of some of the top network marketing tools available. Pick up the top recruiting tool that has prospects saying, yes, the four-year career and the four-year career for women. Get your mindset right. Without a clear vision, success is lost. Check out the best-selling book on vision, Mach 2 with your hair on fire, Learn to think like a successful person with this step-by-step guide on how to break through your self-imposed limitations. Mach 2 Vision Training is a 90-minute, four-part video training where you get Richard to walk you through crafting your vision. It's a must for anyone looking to step outside the box and hit the ground running. For 10% off your order, use the discount code HERO at checkout. If you're serious about building your business, make sure to subscribe to Richard's blog for all the latest tools and articles. This success story is not typical. It is meant to inspire you and show you what's possible. It is not what you should expect to accomplish. Your income will depend entirely on you, your commitment, your work ethic, your leadership, and your ability to acquire customers and inspire sales leaders to join your team. Most people who start off intending to build a sales team do not maintain their motivation to continue.